0: Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. We are in the middle of our four-part January sermon series we call Habits of Grace, and this year we're looking at corporate habits of grace. Uh, The ability that God has given us to form habits is an incredible blessing. Think about how much mental capacity that frees up. Think about when you were learning how to drive, how overwhelming it is to sit down in the driver's seat and have to think about everything, like remembering to buckle your seatbelt and where the turn signal is and which way you're supposed to flip that and your windshield wipers and all those things. Now, if you've been driving for years, you do all of that without thinking at all. It just comes naturally and by habit. However, with the ability to form habits also comes the danger that you don't think about things at all. Maybe you've had that experience where you're driving and you arrive home and you suddenly think, were all of those green lights that I went through? I I just don't even remember the drive at all. Somehow I got from A to B without thinking, and hopefully I did it safely. So the ability to form habits is a blessing, and yet we don't want to take things for granted. Within the church, there are certain habits and practices that God has given to us through which God communicates His grace, His dynamic and active power to us. And because those are routine practices that we engage in repeatedly. It's a blessing to us, and yet at the same time, there's a danger we can fall into to going through those things mindlessly, just by rote, without thinking, or without really receiving the fullness of the grace that God intends to give to us. This morning we're looking at the corporate habit of grace found in the Lord's Supper. And I wonder if you've ever thought, if it's ever crossed your mind... I don't know, does it seem weird at all that we eat a little piece of bread and drink a little cup in church as an expression of our faith? I mean, is is that really necessary? Does it do anything at all? What exactly are you supposed to think or feel or get out of that? I think one reason evangelicals in particular struggle with the sacraments is because we tend to assume God only cares about spiritual things. That's a widespread assumption, and the author Nate Wilson pushes back against that in his book, Death by Living, when he writes, God only cares how we emote at him. That's part of it, sure, but I was pretty sure that he made physical animals and a physical man and gave him a physical job. I was pretty sure that he made a physical tree with physical fruit and told that physical man not to eat it, or he would physically die. He physically ate it anyway. And now we physically go into the physical ground, physically rot, and become physical plant and physical worm food. Because of this incredibly physical problem, he made things even more clear when his own son took on physical flesh to lead a physical life that led to a physical cross where he physically absorbed our curse, was physically tortured, and bought you and bought me, and bought this whole physical world with his physical blood. If he'd wanted a spiritual kingdom, he could have saved himself a huge amount of trouble by just skipping Christmas and the crucifixion. So it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus, who took on physical flesh, gave us physical signs and seals of our union with him. The word Became flesh. Last week we looked at baptism, and our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 11 instructs us on the Lord's Supper, which is a God given corporate habit of grace. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of our regard for God and His word as I read 1 Corinthians 11 23 through 34. These are the words of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we love your word. We love your spirit who dwells in us and who opens up your words to us. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold wondrous things in your word and that you would cause our hearts this morning to be satisfied in you as with the richest food. Would you fill us? Would you speak to us? Would you meet us here and sanctify us according to your truth? Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are two practices that Christ himself commanded. We see in scripture that the apostles taught these practices and they were practiced by the Christian church from the beginning. So we refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper, these two things, as sacraments or ordinances. They are We believe real means of grace. True ways in which God himself provides, lavishes, pours out his own power and presence on his church. And they're given to us by Christ. These are God-appointed ways through which God moves and works among us. Paul grounds his instruction on the Lord's Supper here in the words and the actions of Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, So the Lord's Supper, that, that's a tradition in the church authorized by Jesus himself. And at the Last Supper, as we call that Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples, Jesus gave a command, do this. Verses 24 and 25, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And what Paul received from the Lord, then he gave to all the churches that he planted. That's the nature of a tradition. Tradition just means something that's passed from one to another, from one person to the next, from one generation to the next. And this has been passed down through the church, throughout church History. So our practice of eating the Lord's Supper together as a gathered church, that's a tradition that began with the apostles by the command of Christ himself. And if baptism, as Matt preached on last week, is the initiatory, the initial, the unrepeated sacrament that signifies the believer's entrance into union with Christ and covenant with Christ, then think of the table as continuing, ongoing covenant renewal. David Mathis writes, the table is an act of new covenant renewal, a repeated rite of continuing fellowship and ongoing perseverance in our embrace of the gospel. So you were born once, you have one birth certificate, you were named once, but you enjoy ongoing, repeated fellowship around the table with your family. A husband and wife consummate their marriage covenant once, but they renew and maintain that one flesh covenant regularly. And the Lord's Supper goes by various names in Scripture. Each one has a, a basis for us worth knowing. Paul calls it the Lord's Supper right here in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20. You may be familiar with calling it communion. That comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The Greek word koinonia means communion or communion participation. And Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in, there's that word koinonia, communion, participation in the blood of Christ. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Maybe you've heard it called the Eucharist. That may sound very Roman Catholic to you, but it's a legitimate word for Protestants to use as well. It comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. That comes right here where Paul says in verse 24, when he, Jesus, had given thanks, there's that word. That's where we get the word Eucharist. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So from the sheer volume of vocabulary used to describe this sacrament, it is clear, as theologian Wayne Grudem says, the meaning of the Lord's Supper is complex, rich, rich and full. Complex, rich, and full. And according to 1 Corinthians 11, understanding the meaning of the Lord's Supper is essential to partaking of that supper in a worthy and worshipful manner. Understanding the meaning is vital to participating in a worthy and worshipful manner. How you eat and how you drink really matters. That's Paul's whole point here. There's a problem in the church of Corinth. The way that they were going about this, what they thought they were doing, Paul says, is actually not the Lord's Supper. He rebukes them earlier in this chapter and says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, because the way that they're going about it was completely wrong. So my aim this morning is to inform you of the biblical meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. We want to be, as a church, biblically informed in our habits and practices. It it strengthens us as a church to know why we do what we do. And because the Lord's Supper is so complex and rich and full, my outline this morning, I want to show you six glorious realities contained in the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper commemorates the gospel. When the Lord Jesus instituted the supper as a meal for his people to eat together, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 24 and verse 25, and Paul's quoting from Luke's gospel, Luke 22:19. 19. Jesus gave us this supper as a way to worship him by commemorating his sacrifice for our sins. That call to remembrance implies we are prone to forget. When God commanded the people of Israel to eat the Passover meal, if you remember back to our sermon series through Exodus, he told them in Exodus chapter 12, this day shall be for you a memorial day. A memorial day, a day to remember, a day to keep it fresh in your memory what God did. A memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why do you do this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So here's a memorial day and a memorial meal that gives an opportunity to rehearse and retell and recount and remember, this is what God did. This is how he saved us, and we're not gonna let it slip from our memory. It's amazing how many times the Old Testament gives commands, imperatives not to forget. For example, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Or, on the flip side, there are positive commands in Scripture to remember. Deuteronomy eight eighteen: You shall remember the Lord your God. That means... There is a kind of forgetfulness that is morally culpable, a sinful kind of forgetfulness. You know, It's one thing when just due to our own finitude, something slips your mind, or you struggle to remember a 10-digit phone number, or you've met a lot of people and you can't remember all their names. There's an innocent kind of forgetfulness, and then there is a sinful kind of forgetfulness, things that you ought not to forget because God has commanded you to remember, and yet over time, you just take it for granted and you assume, how could I ever forget that? It just drifts from our minds. Are we really in danger of forgetting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. What a command. Remember Jesus. Don't forget Jesus all the other things that you could become occupied with, distracted by, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Paul tells the Corinthians just a few chapters after our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if, here's the thing, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain, you heard it, you agreed with it, you thought you received it, but there is a kind of believing in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. of first importance. It's not that we forget the facts of the gospel, like somebody tells you Christ died for your sins and you think, oh, oh yeah, that's right. Totally forgot. Can you tell me again how how exactly that, that happened? No, rather we're prone to loosen our grip on the gospel, we forget the implications of the gospel, our our sensitivity to the Spirit's conviction of sin weakens and our consciences grow dull or our functional day-to-day hope for satisfaction and security shifts from Christ to self and stuff or our zeal for Christ just kind of wanes over time or our confidence in His Word dwindles. Can you relate to any of those experiences? The Lord's Supper is a regular, concrete, tactile, participatory way for the church to guard against spiritual amnesia by remembering and commemorating and celebrating Christ and the gospel. And the Lord's Supper is such a powerful reminder of the gospel because of its simplicity, bread, that symbolizes the body of Christ given for you. Wine that symbolizes the blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body which is for you. Those two words, for you, are so significant. Jesus took on full humanity, he fulfilled all righteousness in order to become a sinless substitute for you personally. In your place condemned he stood. He suffered the wrath you deserved. He laid down his life for you. Don't forget that. And then he took that cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood of Jesus seals, it secures, it guarantees the new covenant. And that covenant guarantees the complete forgiveness of your sins. And the transformation of your heart, Hebrews 10, 16, and 17, sums up that new covenant promise. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the covenant God has made with you. Those words for you, I know that a lot of believers wrestle with the thought this is good news for everybody else. I know this is true for others. How do I know this is for me? Because Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the Lord's Supper, you take that bread and you take that cup and you are assured he did this for me. Second, the Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel. It commemorates the gospel. It proclaims the gospel. Verse 26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As Matt mentioned last week, the sacraments have been called throughout the Protestant Reformation visible words. Visible words. And when we eat and drink the Lord's Supper together, we are all together preaching a visible sermon, like a powerful object lesson. Powerful because it's divinely authorized. And that, that verb in verse 26 is plural. You all proclaim. Not just one person is proclaiming. You are all, by doing this, actively proclaiming the gospel. Robert Lethem writes, whereas the preaching of the word brings the gospel of God's grace to our ears, the sacraments portray it before our eyes. In this way, God appeals to other senses than through preaching. These are, indeed, his appointed visual aids to reinforce the word we hear. By God's design, word and sacrament go together. I love how John Frame says it. The fullness of divine teaching is by word and sacrament. God is communicating, God is revealing, God is making himself known, and God intends to do that fully through word and sacrament. Remember the Emmaus Rhodes story, the story in Luke 24, from which we get the name of this church. How did the resurrected Christ reveal himself to those two disappointed, discouraged, disillusioned disciples on the road to Emmaus? By word and sacrament. Luke writes in Luke twenty four twenty seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the word. And then listen to what happened when they arrived in the village of Emmaus. Verse 30 in Luke 24, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And if you're reading through Luke's gospel, that echoes Luke 22 and the Last Supper when Luke uses the same words to describe Jesus, taking bread, blessing it, giving thanks, breaking it. He gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized him in that moment. There's the sacrament. Jesus made himself known to them at the table. So in verse 32, they identify the moment when their hearts began to burn. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? It's through the word of God that he causes us to begin to recognize Christ as our Savior to understand the truth of the gospel and he makes our hearts burn. That's the word. But then they go back to Jerusalem and they report what had happened in verse 35 and they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's the sacrament. Jesus makes himself known through word and sacrament. The Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel in an especially powerful way. When you're eating, you're drinking, you are saying, Christ died for me, and I'm trusting him, and you are proclaiming that gospel to each other and to the world. Three, the Lord's Supper nourishes the church. Just a bit earlier in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That is, through the Lord's Supper, you are partaking. You are participating. You are receiving. You are ingesting. You are benefiting from the body and the blood of Jesus. You you are receiving by faith and faith alone all of the blessings and all of the benefits secured by the body and blood of Jesus. Or to put it another way, eating the bread, drinking the cup of the Lord's Supper provides real nourishment to your soul. Real nourishment, not imaginary, hypothetical, real spiritual nourishment to your soul. Just like your body receives nourishment when you eat and drink food, your soul is nourished by the blessings that Christ secured in his death when you eat and drink the Lord's Supper by faith. In John 6, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. How do you do that? How do you eat his flesh and drink his blood? What, what does he mean by that? The answer is you. You participate in the Lord's Supper by faith. We don't believe, like the Roman Catholic Church, that the bread and wine actually become physically the body and the blood of Jesus. When Jesus said, this is my body, we understand that he meant, this represents my body. Just like if I pull out my phone and I show you a picture of my family and I say, this is my wife and these are my kids, you don't think my wife and kids are physically inside my phone. You understand it's a picture representing them. So the incarnate Son of God is not physically present in the bread and in the wine. He was raised from the dead with the glorified body and he ascended into heaven. That's where he is and from there he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. But Jesus is, and this is significant because I think a lot of evangelicals miss this by their emphasis on his lack of physical presence. We miss the fact that he is spiritually present with us in a particular way through the Lord's Supper, Jesus manifests his presence in a unique way. Robert Letham writes, Christ does not come down to us in his body and blood. Instead, we are lifted up to him by the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes we downplay the supper by stressing the bread and the cup. These are just symbols. But think about the nature of symbols. Symbols represent a greater reality. If you're away from your family for an extended period of time and you have photos of your family, somebody says those are just photos. That may be so, but you, you treasure those photos because they remind you, they point you, they stir up memories of the real thing. Robert Lethem adds In the sacrament, the Holy Spirit unites the faithful, that is, the one who has faith, to the person of Christ as they eat and drink the signs the physical elements of bread and wine. There is an inseparable conjunction of sign and reality. As truly as we eat the bread and drink the wine, so we feed on Christ by faith. To be clear, this is by faith alone. The bread and the cup are of no value to you apart from faith. In fact, eating and drinking without faith is dangerous, which brings us to Our next point, number four, the Lord's Supper purifies the church. Verse 27, Paul begins to speak of the alarming dangers of eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in what he calls an unworthy manner. He warns, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That is, guilty of crucifying the Lord. He goes on, verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment On himself, What does he mean by that? What kind of judgment? Well, Paul adds in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And the word translated some in the ESV is, you could say, a considerable number. Many are weak and ill and a significant number of people in the church in Corinth have actually died and Paul says it has connections to the way that they've been going about the Lord's Supper. This is not abstract, hypothetical judgment. People were sick and died as a result. I think flippant, casual Christianity has no category for thinking like this, that God would actually judge people in this way. No category for actually being in covenant relationship with God that comes with covenant obligations. But Paul's point is not to freak people out. His point is to assure them and to motivate them drive them to Christ as the only hope for the forgiveness of their sins. And so he urges believers, the remedy, verse 28, how should you come to the table? Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In this way, here's how you should eat and drink, examining yourself. He says in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. To, To examine yourself, to judge yourself means to deal honestly with sin in your life. It means to Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and then to agree with God. To confess just means to say the same thing with. So if God says this is sin, confessing is just saying, yes, that is sin. You are right, I am wrong. Examine yourself. When you do, you will agree with God's verdict. Your sin deserves God's wrath. And those who agree with God will confess their sins and rely on Christ who died for them. This guards against a danger that existed in the Old Covenant. Uh, Moses warns against in Deuteronomy 29, when he talks about, he says, watch out, lest there be among you one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his own heart, saying, I will be safe while I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That, That problem is pervasive in the church today. People who tend to think, well, God is a God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, and the New Covenant just ramps all that up. Old Covenant wrath, New Covenant... God just goes easy on everybody, so it doesn't matter. But the warning remains. Do not bless yourself in your own heart saying to yourself, I will be safe while I persist stubbornly in my unrepentant sin. The whole nature of the Lord's Supper is partaking of Christ's. Experiencing the blessings and benefits of the gospel, acknowledging I do deserve to die, and the only safety I have is in Christ who died for me. So in Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus introduces us to this incredible truth that horizontal reconciliation is so important to right worship vertically of God that you should actually leave your gift there and go set things right with your brother that you've wronged. If you're out of fellowship with someone here, then be quick to put things right. And thus the Lord's Supper serves to purify the church and keep us in fellowship with Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord's Supper is a regular reminder to believers to confess our sins to the Lord, to let the Spirit convict us, to rely on the gospel, to make no excuse, no provision for undealt with sin in our lives. And it also presents those who may be in our midst who are yet unconverted, not yet trusting in Christ. It's, it's a regular, repeated warning and reminder and appeal Confess your sins, trust in the Lord, turn to him and be saved because he is merciful. There would be a wrong way to take this warning, and I think some are in danger of this, of thinking, well, if that's the case, then I don't even want to partake because I don't want to eat and drink judgment on myself. That would be the wrong conclusion. Paul's whole point here is to say, come and eat and come and drink, but let the Spirit convict you of your sin. He says in verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. So it would be the wrong conclusion to say, well, I'm just going to not come. Christ is the only hope for your sin. So by all means, come and come in faith and come in true repentance. fifth, the Lord's Supper unifies the church. The presenting problem Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 11 was division in the church. He says earlier in this chapter, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. One commentator suggests a better translation of verse 20 would be, Each one devours his own meal. It's not likely that the problem was people were getting there early and eating before others had arrived. Rather, probably what was going on was, Just in the nature of houses, the church church met in homes. Homes in Corinth, there would have been a special area where those from a higher economic status would have gathered there and they would have enjoyed rich, indulgent food. And those from a lower economic status probably would have been left outside with less food. And Paul's saying that way of gathering is completely inconsistent with the gospel and with the very supper that you are eating. To act in such a worldly, unspiritual way... Denies the gospel, because the Lord's Supper is meant to unify the church. Back in First Corinthians ten seventeen, Paul said, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. One body, one bread, one savior. Everything about this is meant to unify us. And so Paul's final conclusion at the end of this chapter, verse 33, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And again, perhaps a better translation would be receive one another. That's an interesting way to eat the Lord's Supper. When you come together to eat, receive one another. You're not just receiving Christ, you're receiving all those who are partaking with you. It is a unifying moment. The Lord's Supper is not only an act of your own private, personal devotion between you and the Lord, and don't anybody else distract me from thinking deep thoughts about Jesus. It's a unifying moment in the life of the church. What does that look like for us then? If we're not gathered in a Corinthian home where we might have different rooms where people are eating, for one thing, it means shifting your thinking about the Lord's Supper to be mindful of all those who are also partaking with you. Be thinking about them. And I think one way to apply this is as you examine yourself and you ask the Spirit to convict you of sin, don't limit your thoughts only to hidden sins in your own heart, but ask the Lord to show you if there are relational sins that need to be dealt with so that your eating and drinking is truly a sign of your unity with others. Is there somebody here you need to confess your sins to? Somebody you've wronged, been short with. Might just be in your own household. Might be the person sitting right next to you. But as you eat and drink, let it be a sign of your unity together. And finally, the Lord's Supper anticipates Christ's return. Verse 26, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we eat this meal together, we are reminded of the feast that is to come. Jesus pointed our attention to that feast at the Last Supper when he said, Luke twenty two fifteen, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. There is a feast coming. This meal foreshadows that meal that we will enjoy when Christ returns and all is complete. John had a vision of that meal in Revelation nineteen nine, when he said, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to... The marriage supper of the Lamb. When you take, it's a small portion, small serving, small piece of bread, a small cup, it's a reminder there is a a great feast coming. Isaiah prophesied: On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. When you come to the Lord's table, you are waiting on the Lord. You are proclaiming his death until he comes and you're expressing your longing for that day when we will say, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So it's our practice to come to the Lord's table on the first Sunday of each month and when we do that in two weeks together, come in faith and come trusting and proclaiming the gospel and come expecting Jesus to nourish and sustain and strengthen your weary soul with food that this world knows not and come in sober self-examination come in full assurance that Christ gave his body and his blood for you and come in unity with each other and come anticipating the day when we will feast with our Lord forever let's pray Lord Jesus, we desire you and you alone, your righteousness, your mercy, your body, your blood, you are the only hope for our guilty souls. And we, we want not just some of you, we, we want all of you, we want your grace, we want to be nourished and sustained by you as you give yourself to us, and you have given yourself to us through the gospel, through the preaching of your word, and through the sacraments that you have commanded. And so I pray that you would strengthen this church as we regularly participate together and break bread together as you commanded us. Would you feed us and nourish us? Would you purify us and sanctify us? Would you unite us to one another? Lord Jesus, we long for that marriage supper of the Lamb when we will... Feast with you, and you make all things new. Be glorified in us, we pray. Amen.